you're listening to Four at the Back, and we're off to Euro 2020. Once again to our regular listeners, and if it's your first time finding us, welcome to Four at the Back. In honour of the England manager's brave tactical decision, we are, appropriately enough, just a trio at the back this time. Joe is uh, relegated to the bench for this one, but that means that joining me to discuss what was an incredible round of 16 in many ways, we've got Maz and Neil plenty to get to we had we had an amazing day of football as well as a historic one in many other ways so let's let's get straight to it 1966 was the last time England had beaten a major team in a major tournament without wanting to disrespect the likes of Colombia but England put a lot of those ghosts to bed with a 2-0 victory over Germany uh lads your thoughts I mean, what a night for one. I'm still still feeling my knee now. It's absolutely messed up celebrating that first goal. Ah, it was a strange old night. It, it, it was tense, wasn't it? I think 70 minutes of that game, you know, from the moment the uh, teams were announced that until the moment we scored, tense is definitely the right word there. Yeah, I mean, what a night. You know, Southgate went out, he picked a team, and... Not many people agreed with it, and uh, you know it, he he was proven right in the end. He made the right choice. I think it's it's quite easy to get a little bit carried away with both the the, the game and and the result uh, and the the quality of the performance. I think the three four three was always likely to be the right tactical decision, just because matching up Germany's formation in a formation that England have often played made an awful lot of sense. So from that point of view, you, you absolutely can't dispute that Southgate made the right selection choices. Saka was always more likely to play because you need his work rate. The fact that he works backwards as as well as forwards um, as an attacking player always seemed to be a good idea to me. And, and obviously Grealish offered some stardust off the bench. It was a match that was fairly low on quality from both sides. You know, it was actually a, it was a fairly it was a fairly poor game for you know for 72 minutes or so. There were touches of quality here and there. The Havertz pass to Werner was absolute filth. Like, and if Werner scores that, you're probably looking at a very different game. Muller, obviously, you never expect him to miss a one-on-one. Sort of at one-nil down, probably one of the coolest finishes around. So, it's a game that I think quite easily could have gone in a different direction. And if it had, I think a lot of people probably would have said, you know, why why weren't there more creative footballers on the pitch? Obviously not a vintage, not a vintage Germany side anyway. You know, very much a team in transition, a team waiting for their new coach to pitch up and uh, and get them back to they, their usual standards. But yes, you, yeah, obviously uh, two moments of absolute brilliant quality, the sure cross superb much underrated how good that ball was for starting to tap that in 
and then you know the the work that Grealish did in the the build up to the Harry Kane goal was you know absolutely fantastic and what what Grealish does you know week in week out for his club side so obviously a, a very kind of rapturous last 15 minutes of that game um, and I think it, it, obviously it's such a big result that people tend to forget that it was actually a bit of a struggle <laughs> to get to that kind of that point um, at the end of the game but the draws opened up incredibly kindly for them now and the, the last thing I'll say is why does everyone always forget about the Euro 2000 win against Germany I always find that a bit odd I know it's not a knockout game but mm. still like they have beaten Germany like before <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is always given that qualifier of the knockout game, isn't it? I, I think the other reason people forget about that one nil Euro two thousand is it's one of the worst games of football ever played. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for a while there, I thought this was going to be similar. I, I remember we had a little kind of exchange at, at halftime, and I said this is a pretty poor looking game uh, to this stage. And in hindsight, I think the word, the word that I would really describe more than poor is cagey. It's like neither yeah. side was. After the first 10 minutes, the Germans kind of stopped pressing quite so high and settled into something a little bit more cautious. England were playing very cautiously themselves and looked like they didn't want to be the ones to make the first mistake. Uh, There's a few good things you can actually say about that. You know, from a coach's perspective, I could pick out all kinds of things that were encouraging. It just wasn't thrilling. As a a spectacle, it was not, not inspiring. And if it had been anyone other than England, I may have done something else with my time. Second half, I was much more encouraged, even... Even prior to the goal, it, it took a long time for that goal to go in. But from five minutes into the second half on, I started to think England were getting that game by the scruff of the neck. And there was a moment just before they scored where Mowbray and Genus on the BBC said something lines of, well, where's the spark? It's kind of gone. And it, and it was getting a little bit bitty, but England seemed well on top. Now, you're always going to have a chance at this level. And Muller had a guilt edge chance to even things up. And obviously, it's fine margins do determine these things but actually I thought it, based on that second half if I had gone in it would have been a bit of an injustice I thought first half of England were very cautious a bit stodgy not unlike some of the criticisms when they'd gone ahead in the group games but second half even though it was still cautious not exactly risky there was a lot to like they were well on top they were the better team and I thought actually even though he he doesn't always get the, the kind of love that he deserves I thought Sterling always looked likely to make something happen I thought it was a really good day for him and the goal was well deserved yeah I thought Sterling was our best player you know I think he's been our best player throughout this tournament and you know I I honestly think any idea of dropping him is insane just because he's he's the one player and although yeah he's coming off not the best of seasons and yes he can have poor games but I, I think the quality he has is he, he's a must start always and you know I think that's now common knowledge and it, he's someone that he's talked about a lot but yeah you know he, he he's shown what he can do you know back to the game one thing I, I, I'd say boring absolutely you know kg is a good word you know it was a bit like a a game of chess really certainly in that first half or like a modern day heavyweight boxing encounter where nobody seems to hit each other uh but you know what 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 I would say is you know I wouldn't call it poor I thought both teams were playing well 
to what they were going for. Certainly not exciting, but both teams were well. Germany's closing down, I thought, in the first half was fantastic. Whenever we got the ball in an attacking position, there were two, three Germans around us. And, you know, notably Havertz or one of the, the more attacking players was always in there helping out. And, you know, I think we were doing the same. Uh, as we said, Saka was back quite a bit. Even Sterling was coming back quite a bit in in, in that game. So, you know, it, it, it was edgy. You know, neither team wanted to make a silly mistake by overcommitting for sure. But, you know, I, I don't think the quality of the football was poor. It just no. wasn't very exciting. Just to clarify, by poor, I meant the quality of the spectacle. Yeah, and I guess no, 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 that's, no, no, but yeah. Yeah, that's the thing we can probably maybe go into a bit because we are essentially a nostalgia podcast talking about modern football. And I think it's sometimes it comes up with the way that modern football is played. It's either sublime or it's a little bit dull. And, you know, we in this round, I think we had both examples of that at various points. I think the um, Mass's point about the German pressing is a really good one because I found it really confusing that, that they seemed to drop off for about 30, 35 minutes on uh, when that press actually had England really rattled. Like Phillips and Rice couldn't couldn't make a pass. Like Muller and Havertz were all over them. Like Maguire looked like the only England player with any kind of composure passing the ball. And had they been brave and actually sort of kept up, kept that up. One thing I really noticed in the Portugal game was that you know when when Kimmich was making those runs on the as from right wing back, you know uh, Matsy Ginza from right centre back was often either doing the Sheffield United kind of inverted run or he was doing, you know, he was going outside of Kimmich to provide another option. Like they were really bold against Portugal. And I just felt like they didn't want to lose to England after if they didn't once they didn't go in front after half an hour, they seemed to go into their shells a little bit. And I think it's probably emblematic of the fact that Yogi Love himself didn't really know what the identity of his own team was and I think that probably showed in the end and we were talking about England's identity last week and actually the one thing you can say is that no matter what the circumstances England are going to be a patient possession team Mm. and you know in that second half it was a little bit Lidl 2012 Spain wasn't it yeah, I, I'll tell you what I think, you know, I think they ran, I think they just ran out of steam. You know, when you look at it like this, we were passing the ball around backwards, sideways, backwards, sideways, which can get a bit frustrating, but they were chasing it down. They've played the world champions, they played the European champions, and they had to really dig deep against Hungary just to qualify. Mm-hmm. You know, I reckon they were probably just spent by 60 minutes in. Quite possibly. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't rule out because they're not the youngest team. And there's one thing that for once England will play. It's almost an inverse of the 2010 game in a sense, because England are the one with the young, vibrant attacking players, even though we didn't play half of them. But what I saw was kind of a little bit different. So maybe it's a counter point that we could, you know, debate or kind of, you know, another way of seeing it, which was that German high press was working really well. You say they abandoned it after about 30 minutes, but I don't think it necessarily was working as well after about 15. So once England had clearly played their way into the game, that's when the caginess came back in. And I suppose it goes back to your point about bravery. They almost 
started doing what England were doing, which was very shape-heavy, press close to their own goal. And I think that goes back to the caution. That was that was it. Once England had played the way into the game, it was too risky for them to keep doing it, or they felt that it was too risky for them to keep doing it, whether it would have been or not. I guess that's why it became such a cautious thing, because once you have two sides playing roughly the same formation, so that cancelled all the width that the Germans had enjoyed against Portugal, and two sides focusing on shape, not pressing too aggressively, mirroring each other formation-wise, it was almost inevitable that that first half was going to be a little bit tepid from a spectator's point of view. And I think once the second half came in and England saw that there wasn't too much to worry about apart from on the break, then I think England starts to look for the overloads. You start to see that more flexibility in the back and Trippier and Shaw would push out a little bit further. It was, it was less of a five out of, out of possession at the back. And yeah, that point I thought, you know, Germany were going to have a hard time trying to press, to be honest with you, because they, they would have been quickly overrun i suspect and you know sterling in many ways took advantage of a positional mistake yeah maybe that would have been something that could have happened once england had played their way into the game if they'd been too aggressive that might have happened earlier so that's just a counterpoint i guess i think the thing about um england later in the game as well was that you know Shaw wasn't in the game at all in the first half and and you saw what happened when he finally got into attacking areas you know, you had that overload. I mean, that's the whole point of playing a, a three at the back is that you can get those overloads with the, the wing back and the winger. Um, and then obviously, like, you know, Sterling drifts in from the other side. I mean, Sterling scores that goal for Man City all the time. Like, that, that exact goal is what he, what he specialises in. So, yeah, it, it made a big difference when Shaw was finally able to uh, to kind of push you up the pitch and that, that, that great bit of quality... Um, into Sterling so I uh, just on Mass's point Sterling quickly before we move on to well we move on to the other games like um, I think the thing with Sterling is that there are certain players that just uh, are just taller in an international shirt uh, and I think he's one of them you know and there's, there's no doubt about it he, he did have a poor season at City but by his own standards at least but but in an England shirt like he he does seem to grow you know half a foot taller and and that's that's kind of when you find those those players as an international manager, you know, you keep hold of them no matter what, you know, because they they never let you down. And you know, Pickford would be another example of that. Yeah, and I think the other thing you can say about Sterling that not every player in this England side has is that even when he's not playing particularly well, the quality of his movement means that he always has the possibility of making something happen, and that doesn't apply to to every player. Yeah, I thought he he has silenced a lot of his doubters. That probably would have been banging quite hard if Thomas Muller had scored that one that he gave the ball away for. But one last point I want to raise before we moved on is that at halftime I saw quite a lot of stick for Harry Kane. What I'd noticed in that first half that actually in the way that they were keeping that shape and that sort of half press from the front and being positionally very solid, there was quite a lot of encouraging stuff without the ball for Kane that I hadn't really seen too much of in the groups, and that was quite encouraging. And then in the second half to kind of wrap things up, he got on the score sheet. So, is was that what he needed? One, you know, it's one of the ugliest headers I've ever seen. But you know, the proverbial one to go in off his ass is that is that the the kind of lift off for Kane now? Do we think? As a seasoned Harry Kane watcher, he is not fit at all. Whenever I've seen him play that way at Spurs, it's always been when he's just come back from injury or when he's not quite fit and he he looks incredibly awkward and he'll get into the game because obviously he's, you know, he's an incredibly hardworking 
football. Like he'll, he'll try and force his way into a game, but it's not sort of flowing naturally. Now, obviously, you've got a nice little break from the second round until the quarterfinal game. And you'd expect him to get sharper um, as the tournament goes on. And certainly that would have done on, uh, any goal scorer. There's one that's due confidence to finally get one, especially as like Raheem Sterling's the only other player that seems to score. So, yeah, it would have done wonders for him. But to me, watching him, it's very clear that he's not he's not fully fit. I did think uh, what I found is in that second half, his movement was a lot better than it had been in this tournament. Again, aside from the goal, he didn't do much on the ball a great deal in that second half. But he was dropping into different areas. He was moving around a little bit more. That encouraged me a little bit more than what I'd seen for him, honestly, for about three and a half games. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought his movement looked a little bit better. So, I mean, if he isn't fit, then hopefully sort of playing himself into some fitness because it's now a bit of an open secret that Rashford isn't fit and probably shouldn't have been taken. So I'm not sure we can really afford to lose Kane, especially given that there seems to be some question marks about Calvert-Lewin now in Southgate's mind and, and Sancho's as well. It seems to be something coming out about their attitude about not being picked as maybe making him a bit more reluctant to throw them in. So I'm not sure we can afford to lose Kane. And I take Neil's point. It is a worry because obviously he's watched more of Harry Kane than than any of us. I'm just going to have to to cross our fingers and hope, I guess. Oh, and Jamie what, Vardy when you need him. <laughs> that's, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. He, he, Vardy always said to me that, that he would answer the call if he was really needed. Well, actually, actually, Jamie. Um, mm. But uh, like, I, it really reminds me of when we first came out of lockdown June last year and they restarted the season. The first game that Spurs played was that United game uh, that was very much a game of two halves. It was the proverbial game of two halves. Like we had Bergvine score in the first, first kind of 20 minutes. And then, um, you know, United came back into the game after they brought Pogba on and Pogba turned the game. And Kane in that game looked, he didn't even look like a professional footballer. Like he looked like some, some guy they got out of Sunday league team. Three or four games in, he suddenly looked like Harry Kane again, started banging the goals in and his form kind of took us up to, up to to fifth and to UEFA to a Europa League place, so it does suddenly happen for him. Like it's a, it when he's come back from injury as he has it. Yeah, you know, I've seen it before. It takes him three or four games to get up to speed. So fingers crossed on that one. Calvert Lewin, by the way, if Ukraine are going to sit deep, then I think you have to have him on. You have to have him because he's the best leaper and header of the ball in the Premier League at the moment. So if you are needing to break down a deep defence, I feel like as a horses for courses selection, I feel like Calvert-Lewin is an ideal guy to have around. Again, if Southgate's got problems with people's attitudes, he's worked with Calvert-Lewin in the England squads now for almost a year. Again, why are you taking players you don't intend to pick? It's like Theo Walcott at World Cup 2006. You know, it's like you don't, you just don't waste a pick, but I really rate Calvert-Lewin. I do, I do think you need a proper nine on the bench if something does happen to Kay. I think the rumour is that it's all stuff that's come about since the start of the tournament. Rather, You, know, you watch people that aren't picked and see what, what their attitude to being on the benches and how much of a, a team player they are. But um, Anyway, to move things on, because otherwise we'll never get to the really good games of this round, which had nothing to do with England. But before we get there, very quickly, their opponents 
on Saturday night will be the Ukraine, who beat Sweden 2-1 after extra time. And that was an eventful game in its own right. We had a fairly contentious red card. That's a lot of people debating it on Twitter. And a winner in the last minute of extra time for Ukraine. Sweden seemed to be on top for large stretches, but at the same time, Ukraine had their chances. And obviously, once the red card came in, probably run away with it a little bit with the extra legs. And it's a, I guess the one thing you can say from an English perspective is that you wouldn't mind playing either of these sides. And they've just had to run that extra 30 minutes having played later. So, you know, any thoughts on, on that game and about the prospect of playing Ukraine in the next round? It was a really good yeah. game. I, I was so spent from the England game and the games the night before. I, I really did watch it, want to watch it, but I couldn't look away. It was uh, it was enthralling. I, I think we got the result we wanted there. I would not have fancied going up against Isaac and, and Forsberg. They'd be a more dangerous threat to us defensively than than what UK, Ukraine can bring. Um, you know, obviously Yarmolenko's got a a big X factor in there, but. Isaac's uh, pace and youthful running around uh, could have caused us a, a few problems, and, and Forsberg's just you know on fire at the moment in that in that number ten role. You know, if I was Swedish, I'd be feeling a bit aggrieved about that game, particularly being on top of it before the red card, and it, it, it's a strange one. And you know, it was debated a lot on Twitter, and lots of people had their say about it, and. <laughs> To me, that's never a red card. But, you know, I can understand in today's game why it's seen as such. I just can't understand why. The one thing I'll say Neither about... do you make of the red? <sighs> no, I don't think it was a red card. I mean, not any kind of football that I recognise. I mean, one so thing I'll say... I was just going to say, so we're all agreed then for the, for the record. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, one thing I'll say about Ukraine is that where, who did England struggle the most against in the tournament Scotland I almost think that this England team struggle the most when they've got a determined opponent that is prepared to sort of sit back and be patient and England have to make the play and you've seen it in World Cup qualifiers and European Championships qualifiers before that sometimes these kind of top three type nations are actually what cause England the most problems because playing the formations that they do and using the double pivot and all those things means that, you know, you can end up running out of ideas, which is why I would hope against Ukraine, you do say, right, you swap Phillips out for Mount, you put Grealish in as the 10, and, and you know, because you know that you're going to have all of the ball. So who's going to make you the chances? You know, so I feel like it's a game where if, if, if I was Southgate, I'd want to be playing Mount and I'd want to be playing one of Foden and Grealish. Because, you know, you're going to have all of the ball, but you're going to need someone that can make a killer pass. And Calvin Phillips has got a lot of good stuff in his locker, but that isn't one of the things. So... Yeah, that, that's that's my only worry about Ukraine is it could easily go 120 minutes to nil-nil and then penalties happen. So <laughs> you just never know then, do you? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I, I mean, I certainly hope we're a bit more <laughs> a bit more adventurous in our lineup than we were against Germany. I have no reason to believe we won't be looking how Gareth picks his teams 
but you know one thing I have to say and you know one thing I think that helped us again against Germany in a lot of ways is I like the idea of us having a few players who can turn a game up top on the bench so you know if things aren't working at 60 minutes 70 minutes you've got a, a Grealish or a Foden or a someone who can come on and, and, and change that rather than just having all your all your talent on the pitch at the same time. I know that might sound a little bit strange, but you know, you don't know how well they can play together. Grealish coming on late on really helped us. So that's not to say he should be on the bench, but if he starts and Foden's on the bench, maybe it's something Foden can come on because, you know, when you look at the games Foden started, came out of the blocks really quickly. So if we're having that coming off the bench, that could be quite exciting as well. So, you know, I, I do like the idea of having, you know, one of, one of our talented players who have that potential to unlock a game on the bench who you can change it up. So, yeah, I guess what I'm saying here is I wouldn't play both Foden and Grealish. But I'd certainly start one of them. Yeah, no, certainly... not Foden and Grealish. I said, you know, Mount obviously play, can play as an eight. So, you know, that's why I, I would I would think yeah, Mount for Phillips. And then you've got yeah. one of Foden or Grealish that would play. That would be my my pick. Southgate probably would just stick with the same team, won't he? Because, because why? Southgate, because, yeah. yeah, because Southgate. But um, I, I think well, you do need it. It depends if he goes back to a four as well. You know, it's I'm, I'm not sure what he'll do. It, it, it's I, hard to say. I'm not sure he'll play Saka, to be honest. No, I, I get a feeling Saka might, might, might sit this one out as well. Yeah, and the smart money for me has got to be on playing a Grealish or a Foden in his place because they are the ones who will be able to try and break down somebody that are defending their box because they do it all the time. Uh, you, it's going to be less about driving at teams and running into open space. It's going to be about threading the eye of the needle. And I exactly. can't think I can't think of anyone that you're going to want to do that more than Grealish or Foden. So I'd start Grealish, obviously, because I'm me. One of them probably starts in place of Saka. And then maybe if the game starts to open up and stretch in the last half an hour, then maybe you could introduce Saka into that kind of role then. And there's another argument for playing Mount in that role that you just described in there, Neil, because both Rice and Phillips got booked in the last game. Uh, obviously, the cards are white after this round, but you don't want to lose both of your holding midfield players that have been playing going he into might, the semi-final. He might, he might even bring in Hendo. You know, he's yeah, probably he's probably fit enough by now. You could play, you could play Henderson Mount, and then that takes away that that problem because I mean, he didn't just bring Henderson to be like kind of John Terry in his full kit on the bench, did you? I mean, I hope not. I <laughs> no. hope not. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I think he's more likely to play Henderson instead of one of them and not Mount would be my guess. He, he, he'll, yeah. he'll play Henderson in for, but you know, like I say, I they, see that. They, they've both done a decent job. Uh, you know, will it, will he reward, continue to reward that, um, you know, good play. And then, you know, if one of them does get booked, then, you know, you've got Henderson to come in in the semi, should we make it? Yeah. I suppose the other thing to say is that although Henderson isn't necessarily thought of as a great passer, it probably is an upgrade on Rice and Phillips in that respect. So, you know, he might not be putting a creative player in the likes of a mount in there, but it's still going to improve the side from that perspective a little bit anyway. Right. So that was the Tuesday. It followed one of the great days of European Championship football. It started out with what we thought was the game of the tournaments. Spain fell behind to a comic own goal comic for everybody but an I Simon or Simon I guess would be how they would pronounce it and um, 
Spain then battled back to 3-1 up before conceding two goals in the last five minutes of the game. I mean, this was just a remarkable match, really, wasn't it? Oh, it was absolutely a remarkable match. Uh, it's one of those where, you know, the own goal went in and you're like, oh, oh. And no, no one was really hot on the Spain team, despite them uh, coming on strong in their last group game. And, you know, they've not been fancied. And then to do something like that, it's just like, oh, my God, what's going on? And then suddenly they they got mad about it and, and actually played some really nice football to go 3-1 up. And you think it's game over at that point. And, you know, once Morata scores, you certainly think it's game over. Then the comeback was just uh, there. I guess when you've got a quality of player that, that, that Croatia have got, sure, an aging team, lacking Perisic, which, you know, was obviously a, a big blow to them. But, you know, when you've got Modric pulling the strings and, you know, you can always mount some kind of a comeback and no one was expecting it, but they they, they bought it back at the end and took it to extra time. And, you know, Simon more than made up for his error with some, some blinding saves in that match, which you've got to give it to him. You know, that could have totally destroyed the guy. You know, it's one of those things that you're glad it happens early on in the game, you know, because if that happens late on in the game, it can ruin a career on a big stage like that. So, you know, he, he stepped up and made some, some good saves for them and they they finally put it away in extra time. I think the thing that stood up most about this game, Emma Hayes' like unbelievable co-commentary, an ongoing tactical breakdown of everything that was happening in the game. And it's like, you listen to that and you think, why on earth are we listening to Stephen Allenman mispronounce people's names and say, oh, not for me or whatever the hell? Like, she was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, long before this game kind of burst into life from a goals point of view, I I found it fascinating just kind of listening to her. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, both this game and the the, the France-Switzerland game, you know, are... It's like everyone was sending out game over tweets, including myself, and and you made just look very foolish by the football gods because, you know, it was a a madcap finish. But it just shows you, you know, it only takes that that kind of goal to make it 3-2 with five minutes to go. It's one of the most dangerous goals in football, isn't it? It just shows you like mentality is an incredibly important thing. And you saw Spain get very, very nervous once that second Croatia goal went in and then they did pull away an extra time and you know as we said probably at the opening weekend against England like it's a Croatia team which is again in transition you know they've lost a lot of the heroes they've got some younger players coming through but you know probably the last probably the last international tournament we see Luka Modric at so I mean what a player he's been and what a, an amazing football nation. You know, you always know they're going to come again. They'll get a new generation of players. You know, it might take a little while, but they'll never go away because they just got an incredible football culture. Um, Spain, I don't know. It's, it's They suddenly look like dark horses because they were awful for two games. Put it together a little bit in the third game, against, albeit against a bad team. This performance... Like the passing was so much better. And it was the first game as well where I'd looked at Pedri and seen what people say about him because I hadn't been all that impressed before this game. And then that game, it was like, 
oh okay i see what people see in padre it's kind of you know little you know, kind of shades of tony cross about him in that game so um they certainly look a lot better moving forward sarabia seems to have made that team much more balanced and and you know Murata has started to score goals so yeah I, I they're dangerous they're dangerous i certainly certainly wouldn't want to play them in any potential final but yeah fantastic game of football a favorable draw for them as well you know they're they've got the you know the on paper at least because you can't say <laughs> you can't say it about uh anything the way this tournament's going uh you know the easier quarterfinal on that side you know they'd certainly rather be playing Czech Republic than, than Belgium or Italy at this point oh now I'm on the wrong side of the draw who are they playing yeah they're Switzerland. playing Switzerland Switzerland That's so it's one. still it's still true but there's the one yeah, yeah, asterisk yeah. that we're going to come to in a minute um that has yeah. refactored in uh, of I'm course just, Switzerland of course <laughs> yeah I'm just gonna before we move on to that I mean Spain You've already mentioned it was against a, a poor team who collapsed in the group stage. But they have now scored five goals in two games. I mean, has this once and for all put to bed all those boring Spain things that we were saying in the first two games? They started to pass forward. I think it's been very conscious. Those last two games, like, there's much more penetration in the passing. And like I say, like, Pedri seems to have actually started to, to play like his reputation. Sarabia's movement has just made them a lot more, you know, a lot more lively because Sarabia is really like a number 10 that plays on the wing and he just seems to be opening up the angles a lot more for them. And Rata's movement's always very, very good. So you only have to be able to find him. And well, he's a bit like Andy Carr, isn't he? He'll take him four chances, but he will score one eventually. The thing that gets me about Pedri is that he's only about 12. I mean, he is still very much a kid. He's younger than the likes of holland and mbappe and he doesn't have the same kind of physical gifts that they have so it has to all come from technique and the stuff that's in his head and the ability to read a game and so he can only get better i think and it's kind of pedri and de jong you know like that's you know those are the the two like tempo setting midfield players that will take over from your modriches and your crosses and obviously xabi and iniesta have already gone but you know he's a tempo setting player isn't he yeah, very much so. I mean, I have seen him play rather well in what has been an up-and-down Barcelona side that have probably had to lean more heavily on some of those kids than they wanted to. One of those players that I think is going to be important for them to do well, for Spain to do well. And it's going to be interesting to see how they do deeper into the tournament, especially as that side of the draw is pretty well stacked, including, as we've just alluded to, their opponents in the next round, who were the participants in what quickly then became for many people the game of the tournament uh, scarcely an hour after the spain and croatia game france went one nil behind with a shot to switzerland but then turned it on for 20 minutes of some of the best football i've seen in years and then what happened after that i mean this was crazy this was such a good game um yeah go on take it over from me i don't know what i'm even saying anymore it's hard to even explain what happened in that game I, I don't know. You know, I, I can see why you lost words. It, it was strange, you know, you had the France weren't playing particularly well, but, you know, you, you wouldn't say that goal was coming for Switzerland. But when the second half came and they got the penalty, 
a chance to go 2-0 up and you think you ain't ever going to get a better chance. And this fluffed the penalty and that really just seemed to spark France into life. And, you know, the football they played after that penalty was missed was some of the best, as you say, some of the best football you'll ever see. You know, it, it was the sum of their parts, which player for player, uh, there's, there's no doubt player for player, France should be the best team in this tournament. And they played like it for half an hour. And, you know, they were absolutely on fire. The front freeze interplay on on the second goal was just insane. Benzema on the, on the first goal was just insane. Pogba's goal was just out of this world. And you just think, oh, my God, you made them angry now. <laughs> now you're screwed. And yet somehow, I, I, again, I don't even know what happened. It wasn't like, did they go into cruise control? I'm not sure. Did they turn off? Did they think the game was won? I don't know. I, I, to this point, I don't know what happened. And I imagine there's a whole nation right now that, that still don't know as well. And they're just shell-shocked by it. Well, I mean, for one thing, they can't defend a simple cross into the box. I think that's probably the main issue, isn't it? I mean, both those Seferovic goals, like, great headers. But at the same time, you've got, like, three centre-halves there that don't bother jumping with him. Like, that first goal, like, Longley was basically doing some sort of crab impression i don't even know what he was doing yeah and um, that was terrible wasn't it he's defending on there <laughs> yeah you change up your system and bring in this guy at center half who just at the center of the center half of the center halves as well you know why why isn't it Varane or, or Kim, Kim Pembe you watching now i mean i but i've always rated long guy like i mean i've watched a fair bit of him play and i've always thought he's a decent player but but it became really clear that that all three of my centre-halves, Longley, Varane and Kimpembe, like, didn't want to or couldn't compete with Seferovic in the air. And I, I was surprised that Switzerland didn't just whip crosses in all game because they had the success with the first one with one of the wing-backs getting that ball into the box. And then, of course, they get the uh, their second goal um, in the same way. Great cross from Mbabu. And I'm going to say... What? I was just going to say, Varane played like a man that, that just heard that he's going to be playing next to Harry Maguire next season, whereas Harry Maguire <laughs> played like a guy who was told he was going to be playing next to Varane next year. I think that's what it was. I mean, uh, I mean, it's 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 interesting. Like Varane to me, like he's a he's a great he's a great one-on-one defender, but I do feel like he needs Sergio Ramos to point him where to go. And when you see Varane play for France, sometimes you think like, you know, you've not got your, uh, you know, your sat nav, which is basically Ramos, like telling him where to stand. Um, I sometimes do get that impression with him. So that'd be quite interesting to see if he does go to United, like w- what kind of works out. But but they, like you say, Mas, they did change their system. And, and to my knowledge, Deschamps has basically never played a 3-5-2 in any of the qualifiers. And... It looked like they had no clue what they were doing with the system, and it just so happens that they've got though you know that front that front triangle who took the game over for you know for a ten minute spell, and then Pogba scored an absolute worldy, and Kante is essentially a one man team. So they kind of got away with it up at three one, but yeah, you you did kind of feel that you know Switzerland who play that system every game 
towards the end of that second half, they they basically replaced uh, their right wing backs. They brought Mbappé on, and 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 he made the difference because like the two systems were matched up, and and Switzerland knew it better. So it felt like a an odd move from Deschamps that to me. I mean, Rabiot out there is just classic golden age England playing whoever they could on the left, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, that was, that was you know, he, he, I don't know. Of all the players you've got in that squad, all the players you left at home, yes, you've been unlucky with injuries, I get that. Surely he wasn't the best place. You know, I've not seen a lot of him. But he's a big, hefty lump of a centre midfielder. What's he doing out there? Surely there's someone better place to be playing out there. I think the thought was that um, Hernandez would be fit next game. But it's a bit like you can't, yeah, you can't like do a system with the next game in mind. You know, it, it smacks of arrogance, doesn't it? Like, oh, it's only Switzerland. But, you know, they kind of got shown up, didn't they? And that kind of summed the whole thing up for me in, in many ways. Is France came into that game not with the right attitude and I think Patrick Vieira said something very similar it's really hard to get that back once you haven't got it I mean, I've seen so many teams that have come in taken a team lightly and even when they fall behind you can't just magic that out of thin air there's a, a thing in, in in kind of boxing and another fight and so on that you know one of the easiest ways to to lose a fight is to find that it's a lot harder than you were expecting when you came in it's not necessarily about your respective strengths against your opponents if it's tougher than you thought it was going to be then you lose the mental game and that and then things progress from there and there was an element of that with France twice in the first quite a long stretch of time up until the penalty save and then once they thought the job was done it seemed to to lapse back into that uh, the one thing I suppose I could say is how good was that midfield of Pogba and Kante and that even with so many of the rest of the team seemed to be afflicted with that they still played as well as they did. They were almost a two-man team for quite a lot of stretches of that game. I mean, the problem, you know, France's problem were they thought they, thought they had it done and, you know, Deschamps shored it up by taking off Griezmann and putting on Sissoko. Let's just see it out. Uh, but the problem is you've had Benzema injured. You've put Giroud on who, you know is a limited player compared to the rest of that front three without a doubt he has his strengths but his strengths are someone playing for him and Beppe had a stinker that day and Griezmann was the guy he took off thinking right we're just going to see this out go sit down Griezmann I'm going to need you in the quarters but when it got to extra time you know even with Switzerland coming back you would have thought you know, the French would have had enough to break him down in extra time. And they probably should have. But, you know, with Griezmann off that pitch, I think that's where the creativity was going to come from. You know, they haven't got it down the flanks. The system they're playing wasn't really working for them. Kante and Pogba both have the ability to create something, but it's not their, you know, I'd say maybe not their biggest strength in the game. I mean, Pogba was playing on some passes, to be fair to him, during the game. But, you know... It was always Griezmann was going to be the guy that looked like he'd be able to unlock the team if they needed to again, which they didn't think they'd need to. But they bought him off and and that was it. They had no chance outside of Mbappe actually, you know, getting 
it all coming together for him. And that actually was the, the point where Mbappe's bad day really started, was that substitution. Because you say he had a stinker, he really did in extra time. And the last few minutes of kind of normal time, I don't think he was too bad. Once when the really mobile attacking players were, were still on the field, I think wasn't he really central to to both of Benzema's goals? So, yeah. so, so yeah, I mean when he was playing with those guys, he was doing pretty well. But the minute the you know once he had all the burden on him, that changed th- things completely. I think the other thing to say is that again, as a seasoned Musa Sissoko watcher, I just cannot understand why managers continue to make the mistake of bringing him on late in the game because he's not a defensive midfielder people think he is but he's he's so indisciplined Sissoko functions best you know as a kind of poor man's 98 Vieira where he just runs around and like smashes people and then drives forward with the ball what he is not is he's, he's not a Kante or he's not a, a Makaleli that's gonna that's gonna shore up a game because he's got no composure. I think there was a there was a moment in that game where like he, someone passed him the ball and he completely just panicked and like hoofed into touch because he, he just doesn't that's not his game. And Mourinho would do it all the time. Pochettino would even do it all the time. And it used to drive me mad because. He's not a player you bring on after 80 minutes to go, OK, see this one out for us. It's, it just isn't his game. And I, as soon as Deschamps did that, I thought that's that's a massive error. There are a few really kind of telling moments, you know, Sissoko on for Griezmann was a, a real eye raiser. Another one for me was that point where in extra time, the pass comes through and Mbappe let it run across his body rather than hitting it with yeah. his right. What was that about? Well, that's that. And when having missed it, he kind of hobbles back onto the pitch. I immediately had a if this goes to penalties, he shouldn't be taking one kind of moment. It was, you know, he needed to kind of clip it in with the right. But also just the reaction to missing made me think he's not feeling this. You know, he's either hurt because of the way he's hobbling, but more likely he isn't feeling this. And that's a kind of get out for why he's just missed it. And as it turned out, it really wasn't a particular it wasn't a badly hit penalty. But compared to all the others, it was not good. And it gave the keeper a chance where very few of them did. And that ended up being the kind of winning margin in the end. It was a, a funny one in, in terms of the, the things that you noticed that came back to haunt people, I guess. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because when you have a penalty shootout that's that good, you know, when almost every penalty is pretty much perfect, it's interesting. It comes down to the guy that's theoretically a best penalty taker, and he, uh, and he, and he just, yeah, he just didn't look like he was going to score. And and you know, and the thing is as well is that, yeah, he hit it all right, but that part of the goal, if the keeper guesses right, he's going to save it, and that's, and th- and that's just the kind of the the way that goes. I think he'll learn from it though, because again, Mbappe is ridiculously young, and unless he suffers the Michael Owen experience and, and, and he gets an injury that just robs him of his mobility. You know, he, he's just going to grow and learn from this and he will be a formidable um, footballer. You know, he had an excellent World Cup. He's had a not very good European championships. You know, that's OK. He'll learn from that. And he's not yeah, got he's... long to wait. 
World Cup next year. You know, he, he'll be back. You know, don't know how long he's going to be at PSG, but I'd love to see him branch out from there as well at, at some yeah. point because, you know, you, you want to see him in, in a league where it, it's a bit more... <laughs> say that, they're not champions, are they? But, yeah, you know, a, a league that's a bit more higher level and competitive, you know, and that... That's not a big knock on the French league. I want it to sound. I'm talking about Mbappe as you know, as the heir apparent to Ronaldo and Messi. You want to see him at the very best league in the world, whatever that is. Well, I mean, if you believe what you read, he's already told PSG that he won't be signing another deal with them. So that's going to set a lot of clubs, you know, on alert because he's going to be one of the most high-profile signings in world football over the next few years. And yeah, I agree. He's going to come back stronger. He's got to. He's got so much talent, and it, and it says it all that you know he was a a seven out of ten that day. And we're talking about how kind of disappointing he kind of was. I mean, that shows what we're used to from him, and shows what his his ceiling is, doesn't it? Right. We need to move on to get all this in before it gets too late. There are still a bunch of games to to talk through from earlier in the tournament. We'll, we're going to rattle through these a little bit more quickly. Uh, Italy struggled to beat Austria. I thought Austria were really quite organized and determined and that combined with Italy being a little bit off the pace compared with their earlier group games was um, made that a lot closer than people were predicting I guess it goes back to something that we've discussed in the past on the on the pod that um, the the group stage is sometimes the worst place to peak I still think they're the best team in the tournament and I think that the extra time performance from them was excellent especially as they'd been quite frustrated in in that first 90 minutes but they came they came roaring out in extra time and I thought Chiesa off the bench was absolutely fantastic because, um, you know, Berardi has an absolute, absolute mare. Um, and as soon as Chiesa come on, they look like a, a much better team. Great scenes with Mancini and Viali, the old strike partners from Sampdoria's brilliant Scudetto winning side. Who I very much hope we do at some point, um, <laughs> like hugging each other. Uh, as 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 the uh, the goals were going in, really memorable scenes. Yeah, so I think again, Italy. I think every team that wins a tournament has one game like this. Like France, you know, like the France um, '98, and they had like that really dodgy second round game where Zidane got sent off. <laughs> it looked like they were absolutely screwed. But every team has one of these games. I think that's going to do well. So I still think they're the best team. Uh, well, as somebody who spent the whole of normal time, uh, 250 miles from home, sitting in a car with an exhaust uh, that had just fallen off, um, I got back to the hotel in time for extra time. Uh, Italy have not missed a step this tournament. <laughs> I mean, that that will change your perspective on the game. I, I think you know, they, they were fantastic in that extra time. Like I say, I didn't see what happened for the 90 minutes before. But yeah, extra time, they were fantastic. It, it was more of the same. It was just the yeah. same same system, you know, different players showing up, Chiesa um, in there. And that's one player I can't, I cannot not see his dad when I see him. It's <laughs> it's scary. But yeah, they just, you know, they, they look business as usual from, from the 30 minutes of that 120 that I saw. Yeah, I think the subs were crucial. Uh, that's probably the, the takeaway I would have. And it, I, I guess it goes back to when you've got that much talent, then you do just introduce players who can change the, a game. But Pessina, Chiesa, Bellotti all came on and improved the team that were out there. There aren't too many sides that can do that at this tournament. So that's a worrying sign for a lot of them. The only one of the players who came off that I thought 
did quite well or, or really well was was probably Verratti. Um, I'm not sure that Locatelli improved it that much, but because the other players who'd come on were so much better than what had been there before, the whole team was kind of galvanised. And as you say, Chiesa was probably the star. In many ways, I'm not... For all I'm saying about the peaking in the group stage, just, just to kind of raise a bit of drama, I'm not overly concerned because I thought Austria did really well at what they were trying to do. And they were... You know, you couldn't pick a bad player on that side. They frustrated them really well. I mean, Arnautovic had another good game. He could run through and say, yeah, he did well, he did well, he did well. And that was enough to kind of keep Italy going until the fresh legs come on. And it goes back to what we see in the Premier League sometimes where a lot of sides can set up to frustrate. But the players that the good, the big sides can introduce off the bench are so much better than what the smaller teams can bring in. You can't improve those other sides. And that's really what seemed to to make the difference in the end is the fresh legs were just of a higher quality and um, and it told. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Right. So that followed a fairly comprehensive game earlier in the day. Denmark ran out fairly handy winners. Uh, I'm not going to ask you all what you think about Gareth Bale's international future because we saw from that thing that's done the rounds <laughs> now that uh, he doesn't take too kindly to that, but. If Austria went out with a lot of credit in that Italy game, I think a lot of people are saying that Wales went out a little bit tamely. Denmark battered them, didn't they? I mean, like Wales, Wales were really good for 10 minutes. Like first 10 minutes, they looked really bright. And then they, yeah, they after the, Dol- the first Dolberg goal, yeah, they just capitulated really. I, I mean, I have to say Denmark were very, very good. And England, if England do get Denmark in the semis, like, you wouldn't say that's a very that's that not an easy game because Denmark look like even without Ericsson, uh, they look like a very very good team. Obviously Paulson uh, was injured and and so Dolberg played instead and was just as good. I mean I, Dolberg's a player who I remember from being like a bit of a wonder kid when he was at Ajax and uh, he's obviously gone to the French league um, and he kind of I don't know when I was a kid. You know, it had all these VHSs with loads of 70s football on, you know, these funny compilations of of 70s football highlights that you could buy from Woolworths. Uh, and I always there was loads of Kenny Dalglish goals. And Dolberg, to me, like, as I'm not saying he's Kenny Dalglish, but he's there's something about him, like his movement and the way that he shoots that is a little bit like Dalglish. And I thought that first goal was absolutely lovely. The last two goals which is after Wales were kind of, they were stuffed really, weren't they? They were done. Um, and I think you probably saw, you know, Ramsey and Bale showing their age towards the end of that game as well. But, you know, again, Wales, they've qualified for, you know, two European championships in a row. Uh, they look in a pretty good position in their World Cup qualifying group. So I, I think Wales can be really, really pleased with what they're building because their coefficient must be going up all the time. And for Wales and for Scotland, the key thing is just to make sure you're in pot two. Because once you're in pot two, you know, you're probably going to make it to the tournament. It's when you end up in pot three and four, then that becomes tricky because you end up with, you know, another couple of really decent sides in your, your qualifying group and it makes it harder. So... Yeah, I think Wales be well pleased with what they achieved this tournament. You know, I know people say like, oh, it was a big opportunity against Denmark. I don't think it was. I think Denmark are a level above them, really. Yeah, I think I think they did really they did really well to get to the second round. You know, I think they should be happy with that. I, I get that last time out they did really well, but like you say, uh, Rams and Bale were five years younger then. It's as good as 
it's a good performance to get to the knockout stages of this tournament for Wales. And yes, they didn't get a top, top seed team in that. But, you know, Denmark were were fantastic on the night. Denmark are, are well up for it once they've recovered. They're not a team with stars in, but they're a team with solid players from front to back. You know, fantastic goalkeeper, obviously. Good centre-halves. Delaney in that centre-mid is a strong, strong player. You know, the, the, this kid who's come in for uh, for Ericsson, what's his name? Oh, Darmstadt. Yeah, he, he, he looks like he, he could be special. And, you know, they've, they've got some very good forwards. To, to your point, Dolberg wasn't getting into the team, you know, before, and it's taken an injury for him again. So they've... They they might not have megastars, but they've got really strong players across the board. So you've got to be very wary of them. You know, they've not really got a weak spot. And you mentioned a lot of players there. I think the other one that you can throw in that would get a lot kinder reception than he gets if he didn't play for Barcelona and have all those comparisons is Brathwaite. He is a good player. He just is living in the shadow of some really fantastic footballers and, and he was really good against Wales I, I agree completely with what you're saying about you know this is actually successful Wales in terms of the round that they've reached and getting through to uh, the knockout stages the only thing I think they'll maybe be disappointed with was the manner of the defeat to to go out with such a battering and to uh, I'm, not, I'm not going to accuse them of downing tools I don't think that's what it was but whatever it was they didn't have it on the day and a 4-0 defeat is probably a bit of pill even if they were somewhat outclassed let's say because i think denmark yeah. will denmark will give england the game even though england will go in as favorites if they end up meeting you know they, that will not be easy uh, yeah I, I think it's fair to say that ramsey and bale didn't step up when they could have been when they could have done you know for whatever reason i'm not going to say what it is it's you know the end of a a long season you know neither of them have had the most consistent of seasons behind them you know both of them are uh nowhere near as young as they are you know we we know both of them have still got quality and both of them have shown their quality in that tournament but you know when it when it was a point where you know those two really needed to to step up and drag the country along they couldn't and you know that's not not a knock on them you know it it just is what it is you know it happens we're going to have to move on to get this in. There's two more games in this round. Netherlands, Czech Republic. I mean, we're all kind of Dutch fans. We're all enjoying watching the Dutch. We we kind of thought they were going to get found out, but maybe not at this stage. So is it all the red cards? It changed the game. I, I massively changed the game. Czech Republic were very, very good, actually, throughout. But I did feel that after the red cards, you could see that it's quite a young Dutch team because they, they did just go to pieces. I mean, the credit to the Czechs because they were so patient and they just picked them apart. Like they, they did the old cliched thing, you know, when you play against a team of ten men, as they they didn't rush things. They used the width of the pitch. They waited for the runners and they kind of got numeric overloads. And Holles was absolutely brilliant. I I thought he was man of the match by a, a good distance. You know, scored, assisted, like just just had a tremendous game. Um, and Schick, again, leads that line so impressively. You know, he I mean, he's been a player that I've really enjoyed watching um, for the last couple of years, actually. I kind of, he's kind of one of those one of those kind of players that you feel like him and Bellotti, they're the sorts of players you feel like Spurs should have taken a look at, given all of Kane's injuries. You know, you, you want a second decent centre forward that 
offers something that Kane offers and that's that's what Schick it you know kind of brings to the table he's physical but he's technical and he's had a great tournament yeah I was driving up from London in a Dutch top uh, and got home looked at the score and couldn't believe what I was seeing there you go uh, I didn't watch any of it I can't bring myself to go and watch it anymore uh, it was a weird one, especially, as I said, we've all got sort of sympathies for the Dutch. I mean, they never really looked like a convincing team that was going to go out and win it, I guess. But the one thing you can say is that all those things about the draw opening up for England were just as true about the draw opening up for the Dutch because they were in our half. They would have presumably had the same sort of route to the semi final and. Uh, yeah, for that kind of to come off, that's going to be a disappointment for them because you know th- this is the first Dutch team in in a few years now to even make it to this stage, and they're a really proud footballing country, and it's going to be a, a bit of a knock. I just wanted to wrap things up quickly then by turning to the Belgium Portugal game. That was fairly even, I thought, on the whole, and eventually it took a, a really really good goal to win it, and Belgium will be really happy to get through that i mean these this is the reigning european champions they have one of the best players in the world up front and even though they they weren't blistering in the group stage i thought they were fairly efficient you know they, they, they hit the post at one point so they could have got themselves back into it and um yeah belgium navigated a tricky assignment there with uh, with a really good goal you saw the experience i think because once they went one nil up i never felt like they were gonna they were gonna lose that lead um, I, did, I thought it was quite a poor game, actually, because Portugal, even though they've got all, the, you know, they've got a fantastic squad, just like with Deschamps and, and with France, like you sometimes feel like they're playing with the handbrake on. I thought Lukaku was immense, especially towards the end of the game when Portugal did start to throw a few men forward uh, and Belgium were just trying to hit Lukaku. And, there were, and he would just go off on this rampaging run and they'd either have to bring him down or they'd have to commit three or four defenders to get the ball back off him. thought he was just terrific. I've just read, actually, that they've got doubts over De Bruyne uh, and Hazard uh, being fit for the quarterfinal, which is, uh, which is quite worrying for them. But I guess, you know, even if De Bruyne's half fit, I think they'll probably gamble and play him. Yeah, I think fitness is going to be the key for Belgium. I caught the second half of this game. I thought Portugal offered next to nothing. They had a throw of the dice at the end and, you know, it, it was fruitless. But, uh, you know, I think Portugal have often over the years been better than the sum of their parts. And they've always had a star, haven't they? You know, before it was Ronaldo, it was Figo. And they've always had some good players around. But, you know, I think there's been times where Portugal teams have also had, you know, weaker players in in quite a few positions. This Portugal team doesn't really have that. And I thought they never really lived up to it. And, you know, Belgium had enough. And I think, you know, Belgium's one of those that, that we talk about a lot and we've talked about a lot for the last few tournaments uh, about golden generation uh, and lots and lots of good players, you know, lots of players who half fit, you know, it'll be interesting to see when they get an Italy, when they get a Spain, maybe whether they can carry through that. And if they get to the final, then they've got so many good players who can turn a game. 
your best ones are half fit you know sometimes that that can be a problem which which you you talk about taking the gamble on De Bruyne if he's half fit would you when you've got good players in that team and don't get me wrong you know I'm not talking about players who are who are as good as De Bruyne because he's probably the best in his position in the world but you've got good backups would you rather go out with a full team I get I guess it's it's kind of like the the old 1998 final World Cup final conundrum again isn't it you know yeah and will that talk about whether he should play or not disrupt them yeah, I mean, it could well do. It's going to be a really big decision for Roberto Martinez. Uh, the the two things I thought were really kind of interesting, one of them came just from, from watching the game primarily, and then the second one, something noticed and then backed up by looking at some statistics. The, the first is that even though Portugal seemed to be dominating the ball for large spells, I think they ended up with 60-odd percent possession. Because of Lukaku, Belgium always looked more dangerous, even if they only had to, to feed off scraps towards the end of the game. And the other thing that jumped out of me only when I, it's something I kind of noticed, but only was reinforced by looking at the statistics is you look at the player rankings and they're often skewed in certain ways by the kind of things that they can measure. And the only outfield player or the only player in total, because I think Ricardo had a really, uh, not Ricardo, that's going back a generation. Uh, Patricio had a really poor rating. The only Portuguese player with a really positive rating from that game to, at all was Ronaldo. And I don't remember him being particularly amazing. So what that made me think was that maybe the team is trying to channel too much through him in a sense that none of the other kind of attacking players or the players around them can actually achieve too much because there's just too much of, OK, Ronaldo will win us this game. And he kind of does what he's got to do. But, you know, there's that, that he comes back to that one man team thing again. And if good players like, you know, Moutinho's and Fernandez are going to give too much of themselves up to that mentality, then Portugal will always end up being, for once, less than the sum of their parts. Yeah, I guess, you know, it, it's almost like the, the Argentina thing, isn't it? You know, would you be better off with 10 workmen and Messi or 10 workmen and Ronaldo than you would be with 10 really good players and that guy? You know, you, you've seen what Messi with really good players around him and it just really not click for Argentina on quite a few occasions over the years um would you be better off with you know almost the Maradona situation where the level of player around him is not quite as good so you know he's carrying the team and you know you're less dependent on then again you look at Lewandowski and you think well yeah if he don't do it no one's going to so you know it's hard to say maybe it's just the game in this day the level of competition is is that much tougher I do remember reading before the tournament actually that that Bruno Fernandes is not is not the player for United that that he is for Port- I mean, not the player for Portugal that he is for United you know that he, he the, the thing about him for United is he he stamps his personality all over that team uh, and for Portugal he didn't he doesn't seem to play with the same conviction he also looked absolutely exhausted from playing like 173 games for Man United in the space of like a calendar year or whatever mad stat it is like he's just just as Solskjaer just played him into the ground and I, I all, almost wonder like what it will be like come the start of the next season and, and and if United might end up struggling a bit in September because of the fact that that he so clearly needs a rest and I don't think he's going to get one 
so I definitely think that's a that's a good theory, uh, Pete, in the sense that you know those really good players around Ronaldo, you know, I mean, Shao Felix barely got on the pitch throughout the tournament. You know, Jota I thought looked really lively in all of the games, but but again, it's like Klopp trusts him when he's on the pitch to just do you know to do what feels right. Um, and, and you saw how decisive Jota was in that early part of the season before he got injured for Liverpool and he was on great goal scoring form, especially in Europe. And it did feel a little bit like they do tiptoe around Ronaldo a fair bit. Um, I think you can say that given the quality of their squad, this is a big missed opportunity for Portugal best tournament. You know, notwithstanding being in a difficult group, they were very timid, really in all of their games and yeah I, f- I kind of feel like they got what they deserved yeah once you make it out of that group you sort of think that anyone wants to be going a long way so for all of those sides who are all out at this point yeah this is always going to be looked back on as one of their missed opportunities as as i think a few teams might might do going into uh, uh the end of it when we see who's already gone out uh that's about all we've got time for we've been going on for, for a fair bit now just to quickly run through what is left to come uh the second of july We'll have Switzerland will be playing Spain and Belgium will be playing Italy, which could be the game to watch out for. I think uh, I think it's fair to say it'll either be very cagey and cautious and no one will want to lose it or it'll be a, a classic one or the other. And then the following day, the Czech Republic played Denmark and the winners of that will play the winners of Ukraine and England in the semifinals. So, yeah, it's as you said earlier on, right way back at the start, it's the draw has opened up, especially on that half. There's a chance there. There's a chance. I'm not quite willing to say it yet, but I bet Maz will just as we're about to go off. Yeah, that's all we got time for. We will be back after the quarterfinals. It may or may not be coming home. Until next time, thanks for listening. It's coming home. <laughs>